Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast, a place for interdisciplinary conversations in the broad world of business research. My name is Andrew Jennings, and it's my pleasure to be your host. If you like what you hear today, please subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Plus, leave a rating and let other people know about the show, too. And if you have ideas for the show, please let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. All right, time for the episode. Our guests today are Anthony Casey, Professor of Law at the University of Chicago, William Organek, Assistant Professor of Law at the Baruch College Zicklin School of Business, and Lindsay Simon, Associate Professor of Law at Emory University. This episode is a panel discussion on the Supreme Court's upcoming case, Harrington v. Purdue Pharma, and the implications for the case for corporate bankruptcy, mass torts, and society at large. Tony, Billy, Lindsay, welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thanks for having me. Thank you for having us. Absolutely. Thrilled to be here. Tony, Billy, Lindsay, this is a corporate bankruptcy case that I think it's fair to say is getting a lot more attention than the typical corporate bankruptcy case that the federal courts or even the Supreme Court might be tackling. Uh, And part of that is because of the overlay of the opioid crisis that has touched so many people in the United States and is certainly a matter of awareness for even those who are not directly affected by the crisis and the role of Purdue Pharma and the Sackler family in facilitating that crisis over the last few decades. With that, I wondered if we could maybe level set a bit with some of the background of this Harrington case. What are the facts uh, that the court is wrestling with? Who are some of the players and what are the legal issues that the court will deal with? And how do we maybe even get to this case uh, being heard by the Supreme Court in about a week from the publication of this podcast episode? I'll take a stab at that. Absolutely. This case, as you point out, arises out of a very large, very complicated bankruptcy of Purdue Farm. The case is one bankruptcy out of the broader opioid crisis. The claims against Purdue Pharma are many. In a big bankruptcy like this, in particular one that involves mass torts, there are many elements, many creditors, many relationships, many seats at the table for a broad negotiation. And so a case like this is massive. The parties are asking the bankruptcy code to help resolve what's really a societal problem, right? The opioid crisis has devastated America. And one of these companies in bankruptcy is now trying to figure out the best way to move forward. The debtor came to bankruptcy court, bringing all of the litigation against it all around the country into one forum and pausing it to negotiate a deal. And that's really the purpose of Chapter 11, to bring everyone together and negotiate a deal. In this deal, the debtor is effectively creating a public benefit trust company of itself. And part of the deal is proceeds coming in from non-debtor parties, from helping with remediation efforts, all of that, they're going into trusts. And these trusts are going to try and pay out victims. And of course, victims are individuals who have been harmed, but also victims are more broadly our municipalities, our states, because the cost of the opioid crisis has a life, right? It's a real people, but it's also to our systems in trying to help deal with it. In the case, the parties negotiated for months and months. There were expert mediations. There were various hearings. There was all sorts of discovery about what happened. But the big issue that is part of the plan of organization is whether or not the Sackler family, which many people allege took much money out of the debtor. And so the debtor in bankruptcy could go after the Sackler family and pull this money back in. 
But instead of doing that, they agreed to a settlement. And in this settlement, the Sacklers would contribute money to the bankruptcy plan in exchange for a release. Now, we call these releases non-debtor releases because the Sacklers didn't file for bankruptcy. They're not debtors. And so the parties voted on it. There were, as bankruptcy normally has, many objections, many ongoing edits and negotiations. But ultimately, the court approved a plan of reorganization that takes money from the Sacklers in exchange for releasing them from a certain category of liability forever. And so the arguments before the court is whether the bankruptcy code gives the judge the authority to do that. Now, there's not much dispute that it allows the claims against a debtor to be released, but there's been some ambiguity and some question over time about whether claims against non-debtors could be released without consent of the creditors. And that's the issue that has percolated through the various courts and is before the Supreme Court. It is a messy case, in part because so many of the claimants support this plan. This is the best, quickest path from their perspective to get any sort of remediation to help with the harm that's been done. However, whether or not it's better for claimants or the claimants even want it, the Supreme Court's forced to grapple with this question of whether the code, whether Congress even gave courts the authority to do this. And that's the question that's teed up for the court soon. Thank you for that background, Lindsay. I'd like to talk a little bit about both sides of the V in this case. On one side, the petitioner is the U.S. trustee, and on, on the other side, the respondent is the bankruptcy estate itself. And perhaps broadly speaking, the trustee wants the court to say no non-debtor releases, and the estate would like it to say yes, non-debtor releases. Billy and Tony, I wondered if you could maybe walk us through the arguments that the U.S. trustee and the bankruptcy estate will be making to the court in the coming days. Perhaps Billy Tell us about the position of the U.S. trustee. What is a U.S. trustee, by the way, and what will it be arguing to the court? And then perhaps we'll get to the next one with Tony in just a moment. Sure. Yeah, I'd be happy to uh, give it a try. Initially, the U.S. trustee is part of the United States Department of Justice, and it's meant to be a watchdog of the bankruptcy system. It's meant to step in and see, not necessarily have a monetary interest in the particular outcome of a case, but make sure all the rules are followed. You can almost think of it as like an umpire in a baseball game kind of thing. The U.S. trustee is really, there are maybe a dozen Canadian creditors, and then there's a couple of individual creditors who remain, but it's really the U.S. trustee that is pushing forward on what remains in this appeal to the Supreme Court. As Lindsay said, there's a lot of creditor support for the plan. So the U.S. trustee takes, as I look at it, really three broad attempts at trying to take care of this argument and knock down third-party releases. So they first have what I think of as broad or maybe even a gestalt kind of way of looking at this. What's the purpose of the bankruptcy system? They then take a statutory look at it. And then they have a number of smaller arguments that really get into the nitty-gritty of certain things. So I'll try and take each of those in turn. First, they make this argument that what's the purpose of the bankruptcy code? If you were looking at it from a 30,000-foot level, you'd say the purpose is to modify debtor-creditor relationships. Someone files for bankruptcy, they have issues with their creditors, they use bankruptcy to resolve these issues. Filing for bankruptcy means they subject themselves to the strictures of the bankruptcy code. They have to disclose all of their assets. They have to contribute all of their assets other than, in an individual case, certain non-exempt assets. And there are certain rules about what types of claims can be released in bankruptcy or discharged in bankruptcy, and then what kinds of claims maybe can't. And the U.S. trustee, in its initial like gestalt argument, says something like, 
Here, the Sacklers, as Lindsay pointed out, never filed for bankruptcy. They're contributing some amount of money to the pot, but allegations say that they pulled out about $10 billion from Purdue Pharma, and they're only, in quotation marks, contributing about 5 to $6 billion. So they're walking away still with a lot of money. They never subjected themselves to strictures of the bankruptcy court in quite the same way that a normal debtor would. And yet they're being released. And not only are they being released from kind of normal types of creditor claims that someone might be released from if they themselves filed for bankruptcy, they're also being released from potential claims like fraud, potential claims like, for instance, certain kinds of fraudulent marketing standards or fraudulent marketing claims that might be brought against the Sacklers, certain types of claims that they misuse property of the estate, those types of things that they would not actually be able to be released from were they to file for bankruptcy themselves. So the first argument the U.S. trustee is making is something like, hey, they're not submitting to the burdens of bankruptcy, but they're getting the benefits of bankruptcy plus. They're getting certain benefits that wouldn't even be able to be received if they filed themselves. That's the first argument. I think the second argument is a textual argument saying there's no express authorization. The bankruptcy code doesn't really say anywhere with one inapplicable exception. Bankruptcy code doesn't say anywhere that a third party, a non-debtor can be released from claims brought against it by other non-debtors as part of a bankruptcy process. The one inapplicable exception here has to do with asbestos cases. There were certain laws that were passed to permit large asbestos bankruptcies to do this type of thing. And it was seen as an important and maybe essential part of dealing with asbestos bankruptcies in the 90s and the 2000s. But Congress said this is only limited to asbestos. Everyone agrees this section of the code 524G doesn't apply to opioids. And so if you're allowed to do this only under asbestos, then what are the Sacklers doing using this in order to accomplish this kind of thing? when it's only permitted for asbestos and they don't have an asbestos issue. They also note, again, the U.S. trustee does all of the statutory conflicts, for instance, that there are certain provisions of the code that appear to say a discharge only affects the debts of a debtor and it doesn't affect the debts of anyone else. Well, Sacklers never filed for bankruptcy, so they're not a debtor, so this doesn't apply. And then a, a more implicit argument of if Congress wanted to permit this kind of thing under the bankruptcy code, Congress would have said so. Congress would have been really explicit. This sounds like a very large power that potentially could be abused by companies looking to escape liability of all different kinds. And in fact, we've seen recent filings by Johnson & Johnson. We've seen recent filings by a subsidiary of Johnson & Johnson. We've seen recent filings by a subsidiary of 3M that people allege are exactly the kind of abuse that is seen as problematic. And so there's an argument that if Congress was going to authorize this, they'd have to be really explicit. They don't, they're not explicit, and therefore this can't be authorized. And then there are a number of, say, smaller arguments. I'd say the, maybe the most important or the most interesting of the smaller arguments is the Second Circuit, the lower court from which this case was appealed, said, yeah, we're going to permit this third party release in this bankruptcy case, and we're going to apply a seven factor test in order to do it. And the US trustee basically argues that the Second Circuit more or less made the seven factor test up out of whole cloth, and that it's really easy to abuse this kind of seven factor test. 
and it's not in the code at all. And this kind of argument just can't be what Congress intends. That's more or less what the U.S. trustee is going to argue. That's the trustee's argument. Tony, I assume that the bankruptcy estate and, and the Sacklers and others are going to have a different view. What will the respondents be arguing, both in, in their briefs that have been submitted or before the court in oral argument? I, I think the opening point will be the words in the statute mean what they say, and it'll be a very straightforward textualist argument. And so they're going to say there is a specific provision of the code that does authorize this and lots of other things. And that's 1123b6, which says that a bankruptcy plan can include, and the quote is, any appropriate provision not inconsistent with the applicable provisions of this title. And they're going to argue that this is a catch-all phrase that allows a debtor to put into a plan things that are necessary for a reorganization. And then to counter the idea that the trustee will argue, oh, this can't be so broad to include things that release non-debtors, they'll point out that it's not just that phrase. It's what, let's look to the other provisions that limit this. And 1129 is the part of the bankruptcy code that says, here's what a court can approve in a plan and here's what it can't approve. And it has all sorts of controls and restrictions. And so a plan has to follow what's called the absolute priority rule, pay creditors in order. It has to be fair. It must not discriminate unfairly. It has to be proposed in good faith. And so they're going to say, look, This is the context in which the code granted this catch-all. It said, you can include things in the plan that are necessary, as long as the court then polices that by looking at whether you've met all the requirements elsewhere, mostly in 1129, which is this provision that tells us what a plan's allowed to look like. So that's going to be their first point. The text allows this, and you should stop there and, and allow it. I think the next point, going a little bit to the, the Gestalt arguments, they'll say not only that, but this is perfectly consistent with what we've seen in bankruptcy cases. And Lindsay got to this a little bit for years, the idea of a collective solution to a bargaining problem. And the history here, there are things that look like or really are third party releases going back to 1619. And so they're going to say it wasn't for Congress to specifically provide and allow for third-party releases because they've always been part of this bankruptcy process. So if they were going to prohibit them, they would have done that explicitly. And instead, they gave this catch-all grant of authority, and then they said, control it with things like good faith, being fair and equitable that are in 1129. And they'll say also that the Second Circuit seven-factor test, that's consistent with, not made up out of whole cloth, but consistent with applying the provisions in 1129 and elsewhere in the bankruptcy code. So I think that's going to be their main point. They'll retort some of the other smaller arguments about whether or not a discharge can only be the debtor. And they'll say, yeah, that's right. This isn't a discharge. And the statute's pretty clear. There's a provision that defines a discharge, but this is a release. And releases existed alongside of discharges in the history and context as they do in the statute. They'll also talk about, Billy mentioned the exception for asbestos. So the trustee's going to argue, I think, oh, look, they made an exception for asbestos. That implies no exception elsewhere. And they'll point out that the statute specifically says this exception should not be read to tell us anything about any other injunctive powers of the court. So that statute's really a neutral, meaningless piece of evidence in this case. And and that gives them that statutory argument. Then I think the bigger argument will be, look, everybody's on board here except the U.S. trustee. 
we've got a global settlement that there are some people who voted against it, but they're not even appealing at this point. And why would you want to, to take a deal like this? And this is the policy argument. They'll say, why would you want to take a deal like this and, and blow it up over the U.S. trustee's argument about what 1123b6 says? And they might phrase that as a policy argument, then they might also phrase it as a standing argument, say the trustee really has no standing to bring this claim. And that's in their briefs as well. But I, I don't think that'll be the, the starting point, but they will make that point along the way. So I, I think really, again, they're going to start with clean statutory language, and then they'll support it with the context of the code and in the policy. And they'll probably also argue the standing argument and a little bit of history in there again, because these things have been around for a long time. One of the really great things about this particular panel, and I think it's really valuable for listeners, is we've assembled just a great team of bankruptcy scholars who have varying views on this case and some of the broader policy and doctrinal issues that animate it. I wonder if we can step back for a moment and talk a bit about your scholarship in this area and how it informs your thinking about this case, and perhaps it should inform our thinking about this case and and perhaps what will, will come after it. So I might just go person to person and maybe solicit your thoughts. I'll just go in alphabetical order. Tony, could you tell us perhaps what you've written in the past or, or what your scholarly thoughts are that might inform this case? I think before this became the big hot button issue that it is, I did some work on the general theory of what bankruptcy should do. And I've argued that bankruptcy law should be broadly construed to solve problems that arise when you have these kind of multi-party relationships with parties, multi-party relationships with the debtor that create the threat of holdup that parties will try to, when problems arise, say, I'm not going along with the collective good unless you pay me extra. And this is very consistent with that idea because really what's going on in this case is The first question is whether we're allowed to bind parties as to these non-debtors. But the real question is whether we're allowed to bind the very small holdouts against the non-debtors, which is really part and parcel with the question of, are we allowed to bind the small holdouts for anything? And that's what bankruptcy does. It says, if you have a collective action problem and 97% of the people want to go along with something and 3% don't, can you force the 3% to go along? And I, the theme and what I, a lot of what I've written is, yes, that's exactly what bankruptcy does in situations where that problem arises. And so I'd written about that. And so that's what got me particularly interested in this area when we had Purdue and Johnson, the other mass tort cases, bringing this to the forefront. And so then I've, my latest article with my co-author, Josh Macy, is just looking at exactly why chapter 11 is a good place to resolve these mass tort collective action problems. And we ultimately conclude that it is. It's not always the best, but it is a very good place when certain problems arise, in particular, a small number of holdouts to a settlement, future claimants who aren't identified yet. Those are the two issues that really make bankruptcy a, a useful place to resolve these disputes. And so that's where my literature is. Billy, your thoughts. I think maybe a little different from Tony, I've come at this from a pretty granular level and I've tried to focus on specifically some of the things that have gone on in the Purdue case in particular and a couple of other mass torts more generally. I've looked at this, I'd say, in in a couple of ways. One, and I'm pretty sympathetic actually to the legal arguments in the anti-release camp, the legal arguments that, that the U.S. trustee is going to bring, but 
in Purdue in particular, it's really hard to see what the workable alternative to the releases is in this case. And the reason for that is not a legal one, because I think, again, that the U.S. trustee has pretty strong legal arguments. It's more of a, I'd say, policy or what is right or what is good in this case type of arguments. What ended up happening here, and it's a little in the weeds in terms of the facts, but what ended up happening here is the Sacklers ended up transferring billions of dollars from the company to themselves. And they did so in these spendthrift trusts, which are legal entities that are designed to hold money for beneficiaries and same kind of legal entity, in fact, that's going to be used to pay out the eventual claims if Purdue's plan is approved. But actually, these trusts are just for the benefits of the Sacklers. The Sacklers have a large family. They're spread all over the world. These trusts are located in jurisdictions where it's really difficult to make claims against them. Only some members of the Sackler family were involved in the company. And then you'd have to try and make lots of claims against individual Sacklers. You'd have to pierce many levels of the corporate veil, each subsidiary up to the eventual trust. Spendthrift trust couldn't even file for bankruptcy. So what's the alternative? People have said, oh, the Sacklers should file for bankruptcy. So one thing is, what, what does that even mean? The Sacklers, clearly not every Sackler. Many of the Sacklers don't hold the money themselves. They hold it in trust. Trusts can't file for bankruptcy. They're located in the island of Jersey off the United Kingdom. It's impossible to get at the money. And a lot of the money that they shifted out, about $10 billion that they shifted out, almost half of that money, at least 40% of that money, actually went back to various state and local governments in the form of taxes. So then you'd have to try and claim some of this money back from the state and local governments. And that seems like an impossible task. And even if it wasn't impossible, it might not be the right thing to do. So that's, I think, one big set of issues with this case. And I think the second big set of issues with this case that I focus on is the idea that this plan is supported by lots of creditors. I think the vote came out so that 90 plus percent of creditors supported it. But Fewer than half of creditors voted on the plan. It's difficult to know what exactly that means, but I think that it's at least a relevant factor. The second thing is actually that here we have the individual victims are going to get a fixed pot of money. It works out to about $750 million. There are hundreds of thousands of victims. Each individual victim is only going to receive a few thousand dollars. Maybe there'll be some who will receive in the tens of thousands, but not giant amounts of money relative to their potential claims for wrongful death or permanent injury, something like that. The second thing is it's really the governments that are receiving tons of money. And they use this case in, and I wrote about this in an article that I have forthcoming in the Vanderbilt Law Review, they use this case to really make sure that they, the governments, were getting tons of money, even at the expense of individual victims, even at the expense of the way that individual victims wanted this case to proceed. So I think some of the particular issues that went on in this case merit a lot of additional study, even if I'm sympathetic to the idea that bankruptcy can be used to resolve these collective action issues. And even though I'm also sympathetic to the idea that I think the textual support for them is not as strong as respondents might say. All right. Thank you. Lindsay, thoughts from your scholarly agenda? I'll start by saying I was drawn to bankruptcy as an ecosystem for a few reasons. 
first, I'm a litigator and I'm a proceduralist. So the way that bankruptcy deals with very complex problems and the novelty of that relative to the rest of our legal system is just so fascinating to me. It is nimble. It responds to real problems, values the deal in the overshadowing of tough circumstances. And so bankruptcy overall is a perfect environment where tough problems go to get resolved. And so it's always made sense to me that mass tort cases have a lot of connections because mass tort cases, whether they're in bankruptcy or out, have a lot of very interesting nuances that don't map on to traditional litigation either. In the past, I have written about ways that the bankruptcy ecosystem is well made to deal with very complex issues, some ways that it maybe doesn't do that perfectly, but in an ideal system could. I have written in the past about the unique role of the United States trustee. So again, not specifically in light of this trustee, but really what the office is and why it exists. I think we'll talk in a little bit about whether the United States trustee can even make this argument and why. But as the lone objector, whether or not I agree with the substance of the position, in some ways, I think the fact that the United States trustee has the ability to bring this argument when everyone else says yes is a feature, not a bug of the system. So um, I've written about the trustee. I find that very fascinating. But I, I think most on point is this idea of mass tort cases in Chapter 11 and how non-debtors can use the benefit of bankruptcy without incurring most of the cost. And so my piece, Bankruptcy Grifters, looks at previous non-asbestos mass tort cases and instances where non-debtors are getting these releases. I really don't spend a ton of energy dealing with the statutory arguments for or against whether non-debtor releases are permissible, because from my perspective, Congress could easily create them, right? Even if the Supreme Court says this doesn't exist, the court gives you don't have authority to do this, Congress could come in and modify it, number one. But number two, even if the court says that this can't exist or the code doesn't give the, the bankruptcy judge this authority, frankly, they only bar non-consensual non-debtor releases. And so this whole idea of mass tort cases being in bankruptcy and how does the power structure work? How do the negotiation dynamics work? What can the code do and what can it not do? The problem will still remain no matter how this case comes out, because then the parties just shift to whatever consent mechanism they can squeeze by the court's approval. So again, as Tony pointed out, how do we push a plan on almost everybody when there's a few holdouts? You create a consent mechanism where only the holdouts have to go forward in litigation. And so bankruptcy as a forum, no matter what happens here, will still exist for mass tort cases. And so all the work that I'm doing currently looks at different features of what happens in mass tort cases, from voting to the trusts themselves to how the, the non-release related kind of creativity involved with the Texas two-step. And so all of these things are coming together in a time where companies are intrigued by the forum. And so there's so much to be said. It's something that's always been really fascinating to me. And uh, it is a lot all at once. And I think there's, as, as everyone's pointed out, much to be said, but I'm thankful that it is getting the attention it's getting. I want to thank you all so much for giving just a, a really deep, insightful view into the shape and the stakes of the Harrington case and introducing some of your scholarship on the matter. We do these episodes every now and then on the Business Scholarship Podcast, these panel episodes. And my favorite part of these episodes is when I turn things over to the guests and give them an opportunity to pose a question to their co-panelists. With that, I would love maybe, Lindsay, if you'd like to start us off with a question that you have for Tony and Billy. I'll start by turning to something we haven't really addressed yet, which is how this issue has really split the academy. Bankruptcy professors are 
pretty split on this. And you can see in the various briefs that have been filed, there's some very deeply held positions about how this works. And I guess my question to both of you is, because again, I'll let you answer it. How do you think we move on after this case? Do you think this divide will continue? Do you think it will deepen? Do you think that academics have more to say on this? And how can we support both Congress, if they're working on it, judges, if they're looking to us in things like conferences and our articles, but also litigants, because these cases keep getting filed and we keep getting calls to opine on it. So what do you think about the role of academics in all of this? This is a great question because I do think this issue, the, the academy is very divided on. Although in bankruptcy, there are a few issues that the academy is very divided on. And I think regardless of how this comes out, the divisions will stay with regard to this issue. As you said earlier, Lindsay, the releases, the next litigation, if they reverse in Purdue, the next thing will be what a, a proper consent mechanism is. And we see releases in opt-in releases in the crypto cases. And, and so now that'll be the next ground of third-party release litigation is what opt-ins allowed. I think the bigger divide that's going to really get going, has always been there and it's going to heat up is the venue and forum divide. And this, you see it in the rhetoric behind this issue and other issues because people are like, oh, this is something where bankruptcy courts are doing it wrong. And that's why they chose that judge in that forum. So in Purdue, there were a lot of allegations about judge shopping. And there's been now a lot of controversial things happening with regard to the move of cases into Houston. And now they're going to, people think they're going to move into New Jersey. And every time there's an issue that is controversial, the venue and form issue comes up. And Lindsay pointed out something really important in her question is the relationship between the academy and the judges. And I do think that, unfortunately, when we talk about venue and forum, we often, we, the academy, we often forget that these judges are human beings and people, and they're not cold calculating machines. But sometimes in the way the academy writes, that's the way the judges come off. The worry I have about the way the academy functions is we all disagree very vehemently with each other. And then we're like, oh, okay. And we can still have a, a pleasant relationship, even if we say very strong things in our articles. But I, I do think the academy starts to alienate the practitioners and, and even more so the judges. Yeah, the, the great thing about the Bankruptcy Academy is that people in the courts listen to us. And that, I think, more than other areas of law. And I worry that the, the divide as it goes into the venue and forum stuff might change that in a really bad way. And so I think the divide will continue. But that's my biggest worry about it. I think Tony raises a good point. And I think that it even came off in some of the things that Judge Drain said in this case when responding about particular articles that were written and even just the title of the articles that were written about this case and that there is really the potential for alienation. I think in my mind, the big issue that this really unearths is the idea, and it's central to everyone's scholarship on this panel, is the idea that whether bankruptcy should be a process that is only about efficiency, mostly about efficiency, or the extent to which other things besides efficiency and value maximization should be taken into account. These kind of things that from a law and economics perspective, we might even say are like a little fuzzier. Do process the rights of victims as compared to just monetary creditors. And I think that this has been percolating through some parts of the scholarship. And I think once this case is resolved, however it's resolved, people are going to go back potentially and rethink this part of the debate and the extent to which bankruptcy maybe operates more efficiently, but maybe less fairly 
if it's run by a suite of repeat player experts as compared to being a little more open, a little more transparent, a little more perhaps slow, and maybe losing some economic value as a result. Questions for Lindsay and Billy. What I wonder is, there's a statutory argument that, the, as I mentioned, the debtor's going to make, and it's based on what the statute says. And, and the counter, as Billy said, is it doesn't explicitly grant these things, and it's very broad. And that's where the trustee, I think, focuses. My question is, if the court reverses, they'll have to say something like, the words like any appropriate provision and not inconsistent with provisions of this title should not be read as broadly as they are, which is, a, I think, a fair way to read words. But it also implies something broader in that the court will be saying, the Supreme Court will be saying, Congress can't give blanket authority to the bankruptcy judges. And that's certainly something the court likes to say in lots of cases that it has. So it's got to be really specific. And so then what I wonder and worry about is not about third-party release cases, but do we worry going forward, or maybe people like this, that the next case is fair and equitable can't be read broadly. Unfair discrimination can't be read broadly. Filing a plan in good faith can't be read broadly. And so all of a sudden, do we worry that a lot of the history of bankruptcy, what bankruptcy courts have been doing under these broad terms, and the bankruptcy code is full of them, they can't do anymore. And this cuts both ways. Like You can't dismiss a case for being filed in bad faith because there's nothing in the code that says you can do that. Is that something that we worry about? Or you think the court can really limit this to this provision if they do reverse? I'll start. My impression is that the justices are aware that when they step into bankruptcy as an arena, that they aren't always aware of every way the ecosystem works. And I used that word before and I'm bringing it forward now. So I've heard a number of them speak and say they're very careful and they're very thoughtful about how making a decision on X might impact everything else. And so my sense is that despite general sentiment that bankruptcy has run amok, and I think there's something to be said about why that's happening in kind of public media and other spaces, I don't necessarily think that the Supreme Court is eager to make overbroad limitations of what these courts can do. Because at a certain level, if bankruptcy courts become fearful, a challenge to every single thing they do, every single thing they do will be impossible. Right. So the system has to work by giving them this flexibility. Congress doesn't have the expertise or frankly, the cohesion to come together and outline every single thing a bankruptcy court can and can't do. So I think the consequences of that are I don't think the court will intentionally go that far. I think if anything, they would probably be aware of some of the closely related mass tort issues that are percolating. There's briefs about the Texas two step, even though this isn't anything close to a Texas two step case. There are briefs from the Boy Scout. There's just all these other cases. I do think that some of the question about bankruptcy court overreach, and again, I'm not saying I agree with that, but I think that's the standard that, that people are suggesting. I would imagine that there might be dicta to that effect. I imagine there might be some general statements about how this is too far. But I would think, and I, frankly, I would hope that the decision is limited to just this particular approach under the provisions and then leave to parties to argue before bankruptcy courts they can't dismiss something in bad faith. Because again, how I think that will play out, in my experience with bankruptcy judges, they respect that discretion is given to them because they are really subject matter experts and they have seen these plans and they know how things happen. And I think they would also say that they need this flexibility to do what the bankruptcy code allows, but 
really do it in a way that works for the claimants and the parties before them. So I think bankruptcy judges will not look particularly fondly on arguments that they don't have the authority to do it. And then again, how many times did this issue go through the courts before the Supreme Court finally took it? And so I think, yes, maybe it becomes an argument that the United States trustee or objecting creditors or other claimants can put in their briefs on any of the other issues bankruptcy courts decide, but I don't see it fundamentally ending bankruptcy courts approach to how they handle these issues within the confines of the bankruptcy code. I think that we've seen a number of recent cases that have been decided by bankruptcy have followed what I would think is generally seen as a secular trend towards closer reading of statute, more fear of kind of loose standards, more unwillingness to give discretion. There was a line in one of the briefs in the case about the overbearing administrative state, right? I think that there's just a general view among scholars and this court, I think maybe in particular, that we need to rope things in. And my sense is that the idea that there should be broad discretion in bankruptcy is certainly said a lot, but I think that lots of cases recently decided would point in the other direction, hypothetically or rhetorically, if energy resources were decided today, would it really be the same kind of result? In that case, the bankruptcy code did not specifically permit something. And the court said, we're going to allow it anyway, because it's necessary for the reorganization. And so I think the question is, that kind of thing was not permitted, for instance, in Jebic, which was decided 2017, I believe. I think as a general matter, I hope that they do still permit some negotiation and some flexibility. I think that's really essential to bankruptcy. And I think the court's going to be way more understanding of consensual releases or consensual deals that are reached, even though one can always argue how consensual was it if you have a gun to your head kind of thing. But I think that there is a secular trend towards roping in or limiting this kind of discretion. And Billy, a question for Tony and Lindsay. So I think that we've seen a number of recent cases where there's been substantial pushback against any kind of third party check on the bankruptcy process. So Purdue comes to mind, one of the arguments that was raised by the debtors in this case, and by a couple of other supporting creditors as well, is that the US trustee doesn't even have standing to bring this case. FTX, you're seeing bankruptcy court decide there shouldn't be any kind of third party examiner here, the company can basically examine itself. And that in the context of and again, this is obviously unrelated, but You see it in the general context of bankruptcy courts that seem to be more flexible or give the debtor and some creditors a lot more leeway, even if there are good arguments that maybe it doesn't exactly jive with what's permitted explicitly under the code, have gotten a lot more bankruptcy filings. But then you have Judge Jones down in Texas run into a bunch of potential conflicts of interest issues. And obviously, these are all allegations unproven at this point, et cetera. But it paints the broad picture of Have we now gotten to a place where there is maybe too much coziness between the bankruptcy bar and the bankruptcy judges or the possibility that bankruptcy judges want to have cases progress very quickly, even at the potential risk of the rights of some holdout parties? So I guess it's a twofold question. One, what do you make of the argument for standing? And two, what do you make of this broader view that we've gotten to a place where 
there isn't seen to be much of a role for third-party checks on the bankruptcy process. I'll start with the first question. I'm not particularly swayed by the idea that the United States trustee doesn't have standing to appeal. I think the the statutory argument, I understand it, but it, it seems that Congress clearly wanted the United States trustee to have the ability to raise, appear, and be heard on issues. Whether or not it reaches the ability to appeal, if it is so that the United States trustee does not have that ability, given what is left, I would imagine that Congress would be interested in modifying that. Again, if the United States trustee is a watchdog, it is a party, it's intended to be in the court as a check on really everyone else on behalf of the process, it seems like they need to have the ability to appeal. And the court should give due weight to who joins them in that appeal at various levels. But to me, that right seems relatively straightforward and important. So I'm not sure that's the going to be the blockbuster holding of this case. Let's start there. As to the role of third parties and their ability to check the process, frankly, I'm not terribly bothered by this. I know that various things that you're saying, but the process is purposefully broad. It purposefully gives ability to many different parties of various positions to raise challenges, to make objections, to negotiate and advocate on behalf of people who are not. Now, is it a perfect system? I won't stand here and say that it is, but I think it has so many more features built into it than do other systems. So I'll start by saying I think the code is purposefully calibrated to give parties arguments. In fact, again, not to get too much into current events, but the allegations that you pointed out in Texas came from a party to a case that had standing to make that argument. If anything, the fact that we know about it might suggest the feature is working. The United States trustee absolutely has made the the argument and has continued the argument. That's why the Supreme Court is hearing the issue. Yes, there have been various levels of success about the you know appointment of examiners or of Chapter 11 trustees in these cases. And yes, there are some open questions about whether it's being interpreted the accurate way. But people are making the argument. The argument is there and they do get appointed sometimes. And again, I also think courts are appropriately skeptical of overdoing what's already being done, because we have to remember in these cases, there's a limited amount of money and the cost of administration is obscene at various levels. And yes, having more checks is important, but there's a point of diminishing returns where we can spend and we can let lawyers spend more than is even there. And so really, are we operating in the best interest of creditors? Really, are we advocating on behalf of the process? Yes, we want to make sure that we are preventing abuse and we are finding out as much as we can. So claimants and debtors and everyone to the party is dealing with a process that has integrity. But I do think that there's a lot more that exists. And I think it's an easy byline to say bankruptcy is unleashed and there's no checks and there's all this abuse. But I think this is really what's actually happening and what should be happening in this system. I actually think that the system works pretty well and I would like there to be changes. In fact, that's what I write about are changes where I think they could do better. But I think structurally, it is not without protections. And I think Congress has done a good job of creating that. I think I agree almost with everything Lindsay said. I'll say on standing, there's a, two questions. One is, should the trustee appeal and can the trustee appeal? And I think there's a good argument that the trustee should not be appealing in a case where no one else is filing an appeal. That said, the statute says that they can be, appear and be heard on any issue. And I do think that implies a right to appeal. There's an interesting rhetorical point here of that argument is, even though the statute doesn't explicitly allow it, this trustee says they have standing to argue about another provision. And that provision, they're going to say, you can't do things the statute doesn't explicitly allow. 
But the way I read statutes is there's implied powers in broad grants. And I think just like in 1123b6, there's a broad power for these third-party releases. When the code says that the trustee can be heard and appear, that must imply the right to appeal when you're heard and the court doesn't agree with you. But I would like Lindsay, I see the counter argument. I don't think the court, I think you might get one or two justices on that. I don't think that's going to be where this case comes out. The trustee should exercise its authority wisely. And I think this is not the obvious case for that authority. The trustee serves a really important function when the court needs someone to investigate something, when, as Lindsay pointed out, the trustee raises potential conflict or comes aware of things and wants the court to just think about whether they should appoint an examiner or whether or not we should have a hearing on something. And there is a value there to having the neutral third party or the government representative, however you want to view the U.S. trustee. So I think the court won't say there's no standing. I think that's probably the right holding. On the broad view, it is interesting. Bill talked about the kind of coziness, and you hear this allegation a lot. And I think that there is a difference depending on what court you're in. And each court is its own ecosystem, and there are norms and the way people interact. And I don't think the system's broken. I think you do have people with strong incentives to object and raise issues when they think there's a conflict. As Lindsay said in Houston, that came from a party. These cases don't go through without anyone having a chance to be heard. So I I think in the most part, it works. I will note there's another case going to the U.S. Supreme Court this term on third-party releases, and it's about standing of insurers who think that they were pushed out of a global settlement. And in this area, I do think if you're going to have global settlements, and that's what third-party releases are for, everyone who's potentially affected in this settlement negotiation should have a voice in it. That's the idea of a global settlement. So if you argue you have releases in order to get everyone to the table and resolve things, if everyone's at the table, everyone has a voice. And it just happens to be that our statute also provides the trustee with a voice. And the last thing I'll say is Billy mentioned the examiner question. And this is fascinating because again, Congress doesn't write clear statutes. We all know that. And we've talked about the ambiguities of certain provisions on releases. And then there's an ambiguity on the examiner appointment, and that's what's being litigated there. And again, examiners are a very useful tool when court wants to empower them. And there is an open question, like, does the court have to empower them in all cases? There is an importance of having these third-party investigations that courts just don't have the resources to do. And I think that's what an examiner and trustee are best at. But I think the system mostly works. Thank you all for this really great conversation. And we've unfortunately come to the end. But before we do that, I'd I'd love for you to offer any closing thoughts that you'd like listeners to take from this conversation. Lindsay, I might give you the first last word. I'll give two closing thoughts. The first is something that we've discussed briefly, but not really fully. Like all litigation, at core, this case involves people. And the fascinating parts about power and negotiation and leverage are the thick of what bankruptcy is. But I think it's always important to remember that behind this are claimants, are people who wanted to bring their claims, who were harmed, who were hurt, and who are put into a system. And really the question that so many scholars and judges and lawyers are dealing with is, how do our systems benefit these people? And how do they harm them? And how could they be better? And this isn't obviously just about bankruptcy, but it is right now. And so we have this great responsibility to not lose track of 
who really has the claims and who really is looking for a seat and a voice and power and really ask, do our systems, whether they're designed that way or whether they actually play out that way, do they reach those goals? And it's so easy to say bankruptcy is the right place or bankruptcy is not the right place. But I think more broadly, how do these claims get brought properly and how do they get dealt with and who has the right to decide that? These are big questions that aren't necessarily going to be answered by the Supreme Court in Purdue Pharma. But it's one that I think everyone who feels very strongly about what Section 1123b6 says should remember the people behind this case. And the only other thought I'll say is Purdue will not be the last word. I think in particular, people who feel very strongly about the role of bankruptcy in mass tort cases need to remember to look bigger picture because the releases are only important in the context of debtors who want to be there. And then we have creative attorneys who will always try and find a way to get to the relief they want. And no matter what, there will be more questions, there will be more problems because clients are paying big money to find creative lawyers to help them get through the system to get to that path. Now, again, I think this is one of the great things about bankruptcy, that it is open to your creativity to solve tough problems. But back to my first point, always keeping in mind who really are the litigants and who really are the people. These are big questions. They're complicated questions. I think it's exactly the sort of thing that this sort of conversation we're having today should happen more because there will be another case. There will be another creation that a Texas two-step or getting this sort of case in or doing this sort of plan or this sort of thing Bankruptcy is about innovation to solve impossible problems, and that's what it does best. And we just need to make sure that we're watching to see that it does its best, but also does good. And that's all I'll say. I want to stress one thing Lindsay said and then talk about alternatives. And she pointed out that we have to remember there are people in these cases and claimants. And that is important. And why it's particularly important is thinking about what the world looks like if the court reverses Purdue and what happens next. And a couple things come to mind. So first, there will be releases in cases. They'll try to do the opt-in versions, but there's a good chance that people like the Sacklers pay less money for those because if you have three holdouts in a tort case, that's much different than three holdouts in a different type of case because the variance in those amounts of what those three can get in punitive damages can be enough to make that worth a billion dollars or something like that. That's the worry first off is if they're going to negotiate with holdouts that they can't bind, you get a much different deal on the table. You can also see deals that happen outside of bankruptcy, like the 3M mass tort settlement. And a lot of people point to that and say, oh, look, this can happen outside of bankruptcy. But it's also important to read the terms of that deal because there are specific provisions in there that are coercive in order to get to the 99% or 98% that they want in settlement. In particular, the lawyers, basically, they promise to abandon any client that doesn't agree to the settlement. It's effectively a third-party release, but it's happening through the lawyer's coercion rather than the court. And that just goes to show you that the only way to settle these is with some coercion. You have to figure out the best mechanism. And Billy mentioned earlier, a lot of people keep saying, oh, the Sacklers should have had to file for bankruptcy. That's the problem here. But you'd still need releases in that case. We know that you just look at the crypto cases. BlockFi was only able to get a plan through. Celsius only had a plan through with releases that relate to FTX and the other crypto cases. Because if you have multiple debtor estates, they compete with each other and their claimants can bring claims against the other estates and you're back to where you started. And so the Sacklers filing doesn't get rid of the third-party release problem. You really have to figure out 
what the system looks like without this. And maybe if the court reverses, Congress needs to think about this. The last thing I'll say on it, and this is why I started with people, these are people mostly, but they are also states. And I would say the Sacklers are the bad guys in all of this, but the state attorneys general, I think, are the next because they were objecting early on to extract more value. They got the value and then they switched their support. And in a world where we know that releases are allowed, the states can't get as much of the pie as the victims. In a world in which we have a question or don't allow coercive releases, the states will demand the most. And the reason is, if you have 110,000 claims and you settle all but one of them, but that one is the state of Connecticut, you haven't settled this case and you could still pay billions and billions of dollars to that state. So if the states have the ability to hold out the way they did in this case, they will try to get a bigger part of the pie. Now, if you really are an idealist and say, oh, that's fine because that's all for the people, great. But if you think, no, it's better to get the money in the hands of the victims directly, then you should worry about that. And that to me is the, one of the policy-wise, one of the biggest worries I have with Purdue being reversed is this just puts money in the sophisticated holdouts and takes it away from the other victims. And the most sophisticated holdouts are going to be state governments. And they might do good things with that money, but I would think it'd be better to put in the hands directly of the victims. And Billy, final thoughts. I would piggyback a little bit off of what Tony was just saying. I think one important thing to remember in all of this is the details really matter. There is a difference between, as Tony was indicating, a state government getting a bunch of money and an individual getting a bunch of money. There's a difference between an opt-out third-party release and an opt-in third-party release. There's a difference between the number of holdouts and the character of the holdouts that kind of makes it maybe more acceptable to try and use some kind of coercive measure to overcome their holdout status or less sensible to do. I think that the details of these cases are really important. And I think one particular detail, of course, that animates, I think, a lot of the issues in this particular Purdue third-party release case is the fact that the Sacklers are still going to walk away with billions of dollars. There's just a fundamental antipathy that people have to that thought that notwithstanding everything that's going on and all the billions that could be going to different types of creditors, the Sacklers are still going to walk away with billions of dollars. And depending on some estimates, because they make these payments over a period of 10 or even 20 years, they may be wealthier at the end of this process than they are today. So there's something perhaps that is troubling about that. I think the second kind of related point, and this is touching on, I think what everyone's been touching on, that this is about people. Lindsay mentioned the fact that bankruptcy is an ecosystem. I think that's right. I think it also belongs within a broader ecosystem of the law more generally. What is the appropriate use of bankruptcy? What is the right way to balance bankruptcy when you're dealing with not just monetary claims, but also non-monetary claims for justice, claims for preventing individuals from doing certain things in the future. How do you deal with the due process issues that are raised by this type of case? I think that would be the second point that I would make is it is about people. People exist in this broader legal framework. And so bankruptcy does too. It's not just 
about the money when you get into these kinds of cases. Our guests today have been Anthony Casey, Professor of Law at the University of Chicago, William Organek, Assistant Professor of Law at Baruch College's Zicklin School of Business, and Lindsay Simon, Associate Professor of Law at Emory University. This episode has been a panel discussion on the Supreme Court's upcoming Harrington v. Purdue Pharma case and the implications the case has for corporate bankruptcy, mass torts, and society. Tony, Billy, Lindsay, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much for having us. It's been great fun. Thank you so much for having us. Really happy to discuss this with you today. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard today, be sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, rate the show, and let other people know about it too. If you have ideas for future episodes, let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. Andrew Jennings.